This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. And this is Jesse. Jesse, how you doing? I'm alright, Scott. How are you? <laughs> uh, doing just fine. Hey, got some new releases. Great. What do you got? Um, full cast audio. Uh, Graceling by Kristen K. Shore. Read by David Baker and the Full Cast family. Um, it's a YA book. Um, which is funny. I, I was just uh, reading about someone complaining about the Hugo nominations this year for novel. Um, how most of them are uh, YA books. You got Cory Doctorow, uh, Little Brother, mm-hmm. which you loved. Mm-hmm. And uh, Neil Gaiman's uh, The Graveyard Book, which I loved. Yeah, that's good too. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And uh, the person that was complaining about it uh, mentioned Graceling, um, uh, which is, I haven't listened to the book yet, but it's about a world where people are born with a grace. Mm-hmm. It says, sometimes an uncanny gift. Uh, this is the story, story of Katza, whose grace, de- demonstrated in an uncomfortably early age, is for killing. Um, so they mention this is a good one, and um, also The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. Is that one got. of the nominees as well? No, it's not a nominee, but the, he was mentioning, he or she was mentioning these as, uh, why were these overlooked? Mm. You know, they're not even the best of the YA. Um, politics. It's all politics. <laughs> it's all politics. Yeah. But uh, Suzanne Collins' The Hunger Games, that's got a review out there um, that was written this week. And uh, it's about uh, the world, the United States, is no more, and there's now 12 districts in a capital. And uh, the capital, in order to assert its power, because there was a revolt uh, earlier on, like 70-something years ago, um, they feel the need to uh, annually demonstrate their power. So to do so, what they do is they take two kids from each district and make them fight to the death on reality television. And uh, that's a YA book that's getting a lot of uh, really positive reviews, as well on our, our site. It, it, it's been a great book. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, in from Brilliance Audio, we've got uh, the number two book in the Honor Harrington series um, by David Weber, uh, The Honor of the Queen. It's read by Allison Johnson. Um, the first book on Basilisk, on Basilisk Station is um, out for review right now. Who has that? Uh, Paul Campbell has that. Right. Yes, so um, I haven't read any of these, but uh, military science fiction... Um, I'm thinking uh, something on the order of the Vorkosigan series, which I have read those, or some of those. Um, my wife has listened to every one. Um, Blackstone Audio just came out with the first book in that series, Shards of Honor, um, by Lois McMaster Bujold, all read by Grover Gardner. And with that book, they're, they're one short of having them all out. And, uh, Berea is the one that they're missing, and it's it's on the way out. Okay. Within a couple of months. It's like a and long-running then, series, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's long. I, I don't know how many volumes, but I'm looking over there on my shelf right now, and I've got uh, there's five audiobooks sitting there right now uh, for Kozigans. And my wife has listened to all of them, so we need to get her to write some stuff up for the site. Definitely. Yeah. 
Um, another one from Brilliance Audio. John Ringo and Julie Cochran. Honor of the Clan. Um, which is uh, just a little bit off the back. Uh, the Indoe, I-N-D-O-W-Y, with a capital I, so it must be a uh, proper name, huh? Yeah. Bane, the, the Indoe Bane Sid conspiracy has grown strong in the cunning and resourceful Darhel, tacit rulers of the Galactic Federation have decided that the time has come to wipe that threat from the stars forever. What the Darhel don't know is that humans have joined the rebellion, led by thief and assassin extraordinaire Callie O'Neill. Now Callie is set to destroy a web of alien deceit millennia in the making. So this uh, is a sequel of to Callie's War. Yeah. Hmm. Callie's War, also written by John Ringo and Julie Cochran. Um... I listened to uh, a version that was put out by uh, Paperback Digital. Did you review that one too? I think you might have. I think I might have, but I don't remember positively. Um, but anyway, Paperback Digital is no longer. So yeah, I don't. Um, I don't think anybody can even get that unless they're yeah, buying it on eBay. Right. So uh, I don't know if Callie's War is available from Brilliance Audio now. Um, and these these were both um, Audible. Um, Audible Frontiers titles. Oh. Yeah, both of them were. So they've been on Audible for just a little while, and now they are Brilliance hard is copy. pretty fast for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they've got, um, gosh, since our last podcast, I got in Hyperion by Dan Simmons, which is on my, my list of two listens. It's uh, um, coming right up for me. Yeah, that sounds um, like it'd be good. Yeah, and it was an Audible Frontiers title, and now those are multiple readers, right? Yeah, multi-voice presentation. Um, Victor Bavine, Allison Johnson, Kevin Parceau, Jay Snyder, and Mark Vitor. Vitor. I believe the the, it makes sense. I haven't actually read that one yet, but Mm -hmm. um, I believe that it makes sense to do that way because it's it's uh, I believe it's a story done after like in the spirit of the Canterbury Tales. So it's a whole bunch of different people telling their story. Right. So that would make Uh, make my my knowledge of Hyperion uh, comes from a couple emails I've got, but also the uh, um, Kick-Ass Mystic Ninja podcast. Yeah, great. They talked about Hyperion. Yeah. And that's uh, anyway, kind of, kind of got mixed reviews on that show. So I'm looking forward to listening. It sounds like it's up my alley, though. Yeah, it sounds really good. But, okay, now I got a couple of audiobooks in from. Uh, it says a Black Library audiobook. So I, I assume the publisher is Black Library. These guys are in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them are one CD, 75 minutes long, um, and they're both Warhammer titles. Warhammer 40,000. Heart of Rage by James Swallow and Warhammer Slayer of the Storm God by Nathan Long. Um, James Swallow is uh, the guy who's writing the new Babylon 5, uh, sorry, Blake 7 series. Ah, yes. Right. Audio series. Yes. Really good. Should, okay. Those should be good. Those should be. Okay, cool. Are they uh, unabridged short well, stories? Or? You know, I. I um, when I originally got them, you know, and see that they're only 75 minutes long, you know, you got to assume, well, these are uh, audio dramas. Mm-hmm. So I, I sampled one. Um, I haven't listened to the whole thing, but I put in Slayer of the Storm God and started to listen. And, and it is, it's an audio book, so meaning there's just one person reading a story, but there's lots of uh, sound effects and things going on behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's only 75 minutes long, so 
you know, I, I don't know enough to know if these are novels that were cut to 75 minutes long or if they're stories just written just for this medium. Um, I don't know, but, uh, you know, maybe I'll write them and find out exactly what the story is. You know, Warhammer's like a gaming, um, uh, role-playing game, but more like, uh, wargaming. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, orcs and humans, orcs and space marines fighting each other in the year 40,000, I think is the premise. Okay. That's that's a long time out there, 40,000 years. I think so. I think that's why it's called Warhammer 40,000. Excellent. All right, an exciting title from Infinivox. Oh. Uh, the Year's Top Ten Tales of Science Fiction, edited by Alan Castor. Yeah, that's got a bunch of good stuff in it. Yeah, it sure does. I'm, you know, it, it doesn't say, you know, number one or 2008 on it, um, but, but I hope that he's thinking this will be annual. Um, but what he's done is he's picked uh, ten great stories and, and put them in this package. Uh, How many tor- CDs? There is eight. Eight CDs. Uh, Turing's Apples by Stephen Baxter. Shoggoths in Bloom by Elizabeth Baer. Exhalation by Ted Chang. The Dream of Reason by Jeffrey Ford. The Ray Gun, A Love Story by James Allen Gardner. Twenty-Six Monkeys, Also the Abyss by Kid Johnson. The Art of Alchemy by Ted Kosmatka. The City of the Dead by Paul McCauley. Five Thrillers by Robert Reed. And Fixing Hanover by Jeff Vandermeer. So, kind of exciting. Did you, I'm did you mention Exhalation? I, I... Yeah, Exhalation by Ted Chang. She yeah. There. yeah. That's, that makes it worth buying just for that. <laughs> Heck yeah. It's a fantastic story. If Ted Chiang has a story in it. It's worth buying. Yeah, I've I've actually bought anthology uh, just because he's in it. The Exhalation anthology. I think it was Eclipse. I think Eclipse was the name of the anthology. Eclipse or Eclipse Two. Yeah, Eclipse Two. Um, anyway, I'm just looking for it here because it's not not seeing it. But yeah, I bought that just for Exhalation, and I read Exhalation. Just blew me away. I mean, what a what a story that guy. Just every story he's written has just been a gem. Yeah. So, yep, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. You know, I, I would love to have a, a good, high-quality audiobook of uh, Ted Chang's stories. I'm, I'm betting that that's what we've got here. Yeah. A Knock by Frederick Brown. The last man on Earth sat alone in a room. There was a knock on the door. That's wow. the entire story. That was awesome. <laughs> I, I believe. I, I could be off by a word. But, uh, <laughs> um, so uh, I mention this just because um, uh, there's uh, five different versions of Knock as audio dramas available on um, Zombie Astronaut's latest blog post. Mm-hmm. He has a uh, Dimension X version, uh, which is... Um, half hour uh, X minus one which is a half hour future tense which is uh, a show that redid X minus one scripts um, and uh, mind webs and a seeing year theater version that's the shortest one only 20 22 minutes or so but um, <laughs> I, just, I think they're taking great liberties with the story <laughs> so right? too, yeah because 
it ends it ends after the second line and then they come up with their own uh, response unless there's a unless Frederick Brown wrote two versions you know there's the short version and the long version because when I first discovered knock I was it's in one of those uh, big anthologies collections of you know famous uh-huh. science fiction stories and I turned to the page that it's on in the book and said oh there's something by Frederick Brown I'll, I'll read it and uh, I turned to the page and I said, wait, wait a second, this story's all cut off. I've got the intro, and then turn the next page, it's a new story. What the hell's going on here? <laughs> uh, then I read the story, and I said, oh, I see, I see what he's doing. And it, that's totally Frederick Brown. He's he's like, a, he's a, a little tease, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. His, he's very meta about his, um, his writing. He, he likes to... He, he, it's like he write a uh, science fiction story about a science fiction writer writing a science fiction story, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Oh, sure. And he's a he's highly influential guy, um, or was a highly influential guy. He um, he he wrote er, sort of pretty early in the golden age, I guess it's called, and um, that eventually led him to uh, influence later writers like Lawrence Block and. Uh, basically every science fiction writer as yeah, well. Yeah. You read a lot of him? Uh, Frederick Brown? Not not a heck of a lot. Didn't he, didn't he write Martians Go Home? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I remember that one. And I remember Knock. Um, but no, I like so, Frederick Brown. There's, um, I'm just look, looking it up on, uh, yeah, Google Images has a bunch of pictures that I've done. Uh, one of them is uh, Earthmen Bearing Gifts, which mm-hmm. is a um, uh, it's a typical typical uh, Frederick Brown story. It's uh, about Martians uh, living on Mars and um, uh, their first meeting with humans who come to the planet. Uh, very funny. Mm. Um, and uh, and actually, Rick has done a couple more. Um, one called Expedition and one called Arena. Oh, yeah, Arena. Yeah, that was even a Star Trek episode. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's uh, definitely a Star Trek episode. I also I encountered that one actually um, in a uh, an old um, black and white uh, 1970s comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember what it's called, but it's like a science fiction stories in in a magazine style comic book oh. arena not, was not one of the it was one of the first short stories I read I remember as a kid I was at someone's house and they had an anthology you know like world treasury of science fiction or some some thick anthology on their bookshelf mm-hmm. and uh, I remember I flipped through there and it was a fairly short story so I read it and then I, I, I was like boy this is similar to Star Trek I remember thinking that <laughs> And uh, yeah, but it, that's just something I really remember reading that story. It's a good story. Yeah, it is. Hey, what I'm listening right now to a nonfiction called Rocket Man, um, which is about uh, Apollo 11, which is timely, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a 40th anniversary. Yeah, this is one of the two periods of history that I'm most interested in. Well, it's really an extension of uh, World War Two. <laughs> you know the the uh, the guys who designed the rockets and everything like that are uh, from uh, Germany, 
you know, Werner von Braun and that. Anyway, it mm-hmm. talks about not only the astronauts, um, but also the uh, the folks, the engineers and the rocket guys and all that. Anyway, it's called Rocket Men, the Epic Story of the First Man on the Moon by Craig Nelson, read by Richard McGonigal, and it's from Penguin Audio. That sounds good. Yeah. Um, I'm also reading a, a really cool book. Now, this one's not on audio, but, I mean, it's just so cool that I have to mention it. <laughs> it's called Digital Apollo. Uh-huh. And uh, it's by a, a guy from MIT. In fact, it's published by MIT Press. And um, what it's... This is actually... I, I didn't know when I picked it up. Uh, you know, I picked it up, you know, a few months ago. Um, but it's the it's the third book in a trilogy that was written this, by this guy, and his name is um, David A. Mindel. M-I-N-D-E-L-L. And it's published by the MIT Press. Um... It's it's the third in a trilogy of books that he wrote to explore the connection between man and machine. And um, see, it is the third in an unplanned trilogy, a series of books I've been writing since I chose to become a historian in 1991. For 15 years, beginning with a study of the USS Monitor in the American Civil War, I've written about the relationship of humans and machines, the experiences of new technologies and their effect, effects on human identity. My second book, Between Human and Machine, Feedback, Control, and Computing Before Cybernetics, explored the history of human interfaces, control systems, and digital computing. This is all about the, the systems that they used to get to the moon and how they were extensions of our human abilities. and Like the lander, the thing, you know, the lander, the eagle that they landed in? Mm-hmm. They stood up in there. Yeah. It was more like a... You don't need to have seats. When yeah, there's you're, uh, there's no in seats. Space. <laughs> in fact, yeah. you can you can withstand acceleration better when you're standing right. versus yeah. uh, seating. Yeah, and then uh, you know it's interesting to note that you know they had control systems for landing, but every single time they landed on the moon, the astronaut took over and did the landing. Yeah. So. Yeah, I guess th- there's always an argument, I guess, between the guys who uh, are on the ground, the, the mission control and the guys who are uh, flying the thing. You know, who's actually flying that thing? Because, you know, it's all controlled by computers and um, connections to ground control and all that. But the pilots, you know, they want to fly the thing. So um, That's what pilots do. It's a constant battle. In the 1960s, I think it was 1960, uh, there was a movie that came out about Bernard von Braun. Um, and he's a very controversial character because he he's you know amazing rocket guy right mm-hmm. uh, had dreamed of sending rockets to Mars, um, uh, but of course he was also uh, uh, a member of the SS and a Nazi and you know helped uh, kill thousands of people in uh, the war with mm-hmm. V ones and V two rockets. Um, uh, so in 1960, they had a biography of him called "I Aim for the Stars," uh-huh. um, and one of the reviewers of the movie said um, <laughs> uh, it should be subtitles. Uh, subtitled, but sometimes I hit London. <laughs> <laughs> I aim for the stars, but sometimes yeah. I hit London. You know, they said on on the day you know that they launched to go to the moon on Apollo 11. He said, give him 10 years and $10 billion and we'll be on Mars. 
and that obviously never happened. Uh, a couple of years ago, I reviewed um, uh, an audiobook called Ascent, uh, which was oh, a uh, yeah, Jed Mercurio. Yeah, it was like a um, alternate history in which the Russians uh, land a man on the moon before the, the Americans, mm-hmm. um, and it was a great book um, because it, it it's 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 almost like plausible, right? It it does it so that it ends up being a secret mission, so n- no one really even knows. But it, they basically they paralleled the story of the you know the regular astronauts uh, with this guy, a cosmonaut, grew up. Uh, as a kid during World War II, fights in Korea, and then goes on to be, uh, you know, a lunar, uh, a lunar pi- uh, pilot. It mm. was um, an amazing book. Yeah, I, um, I'm really into anything that's hi- historical and fiction at the same time. Is yeah, there's definitely a, up my alley. There's a really great audio drama version of uh, Voyage by Stephen Baxter. Mm-hmm. It's done by Dirk Mags at BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, Voyage, it, it takes place, uh, it, it's it's an alternate history. Um, so JFK, the, the very first thing that happens in the audio drama is um, you see John F. Kennedy in a wheelchair, which is how he ended up after the assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. So from there, um, we, we went ahead and went to the moon, but he was still alive. And... Um, Somehow that divergence resulted in um, a mission to Mars, um, you know, in the 80s. Which is what would have happened had they kept, you know, going the way that they were going. Is it, um, That's a Stephen Baxter novel? That Stephen Baxter novel named, yeah, it was called Voyage by yeah. Stephen Baxter. And then it's an audio drama that's about two hours long. That sounds really good. It's really terrific. You know, it's done by Dirk Maggs, and you can't beat that. I mean, yeah, it's, his, his I, audio drama's tops. So, um, And they did release it on cassette. I had a cassette version at one time. Um, but I don't know if they ever released it on CD or not. Okay, well, we can start with me telling you how great the four-sided triangle was. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that was a, uh, first of all, the, the narration was excellent. I forget the name of the fellow who did it. The British guy of some kind. Demereau. Yeah, very nice. I mean, that that was really excellent narration. And that's a good story, and that's an author I have not heard of before. How did you run across that story? Um, I was reading some anthology, like the best science fiction of the 1940s, I believe, or uh-huh. is that the 30s? Yeah. And, uh. It was just one of the stories in there, and with the introduction, they mentioned that it was, you know, very popular at the time. Uh-huh. And so it's kind of like a near classic. Gotcha. But, and uh, what's the fellow's know? name again? I don't have it in front of me. Oh, uh, William F. Temple. William F. Temple, okay. Yeah, well, I, 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 I wanted to say name. Nolan, but uh, yeah. it's different. Okay. William F. Temple, William F. Nolan. Um, uh, what else has he written that we would know about, you know? He did a novelization of that same story that's oh. very famous, mm. too. And that that there's a movie version also of The Four-Sided Triangle. Oh, I'm just kidding. Seen. I didn't know that. I'm not sure if that's a British or uh, an American production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a quick synopsis. Uh, the story opens with uh, three scientists looking at um, the replication of a painting atom by atom so um, they've just figured out how to reproduce things. 
and then um, the natural thing to do next is try to reproduce things that are alive. Yeah, uh, it starts with a love triangle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it it sort of yeah connect the dots. Right. Yeah, it was good. Very well done. Well, so that's available you. on Audible. Is it available now? Yes, it is. Okay, great. Yep. If you go to um, audible.com slash wonderaudio, mm-hmm. you'll see that. And in the past, what, two months, in the past 30 days, there's 10 new titles up there. Oh, terrific. Yeah. In fact, there's three new ones I don't know if you guys know about. I haven't posted them yet. As no. They released. There's what some guy named Ray Bradbury. Oh, really? Hey, that guy's <laughs> going to be famous. I'd hold on to that. <laughs> What, what, what have you Knight? got by Ray Bradbury? It's called um, The Creatures That Time Forgot. Oh. And it was originally published in Planet Stories, which was a body pulp. It doesn't have dinosaurs. Oh. The Creatures That Time Forgot are actually people that were <laughs> left on this. <laughs> I think they were trying to tap into the people that time forgot, or the land that time forgot, the Ed Rice Burroughs trilogy. Uh-huh. But anyways, uh this is like a alien planet and these people are born and raised and their metabolism is super fast. So they live for like seven days or six days or something like that. And uh, it's really a strange story for Ray Bradbury because most of his story seems to be uh, kind of nostalgic and how crappy the human race is. You know, human nature is horrible. You know, <laughs> that's what I seem to find a lot in Ray Bradbury. And this one's more of the... Um, the sense of wonder that I usually don't get from Ray Bradbury, but it's really good and it's really well written. You know, it's still poetic. Ray Bradbury can definitely turn a phrase and everything. And uh, yeah, he's kind of cynical, actually. Now that you yes, he is. He is. You know, you think of the Mars stories and stuff. You know, and it's just yeah. You know, and I I generally agree with them. I mean, I I I'm kind of cynical myself as far as you know. You can just see how the human race is treated. Other yeah. cultures, it makes sense. But um, that one's really good. That's narrated by William Kuhn. In fact, all three of these newest ones are by William Kuhn, narrated by. Well, that's a good thing because I, I listened to uh, to the um, first novel of that Ed and Am series. What's it called? Um, the Fabulous Clip Joint. That's the one. Um, awesome, 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 awesome. Um, it wasn't what I expected. I thought it was going to be all set at at the the carnival, right? Right. But um, I was blown away. I thought it was amazing. Um, William well, Kuhn did a really good job. He's very. He's got a very. Um, he's got the spot on voice for it. You know, it's very youthful in this. Um, yeah. And uh, I I can't believe what a great writer Frederick Brown is. Uh, you know, I've read lots of his stuff before, but I don't know if I read one of his novels before. And one of the th- there, like, there's a scene in there where uh, Uncle Am Ambrose is talking about women's handbags, and I'm going, oh my god, he's he's talking about women women's handbags, and I care, I care about what they're talking about so much. I thought this is brilliant. He's such a great writer. He can write about any topic. And you, you're you saying, that's actually interesting. Yeah, he's a hell of a storyteller. It's, 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 it's funny in places where it shouldn't be funny. And it's, it's, a, you know, it's a very solid mystery. Um, 
I, I didn't know that it was a series. There's a bunch of these novels they follow up with, or they become private investigators, apparently. Right, and I think some of them are more, um, they, they take they take that carny aspect and play it up more. I haven't read them, but I'm going to for sure. It's it's a really great book, actually. I yeah, it's an Edgar Award winner for best first novel or mystery novel. 1947, something like that. Yeah, somewhere around there, 47, wow. 48. I remember. It's... One of the new titles that just got released is uh, "The Winch Is Dead" by Frederick Brown, and this is a shorter piece. It's just under an hour. But uh, it's also really good. It's more of the more typical of the '50s nihilistic type noir story. Yeah, it's it, we, they're actually alcoholic, but a likable alcoholic. <laughs> well, there's an alcohol. Uh, the mother's an alcoholic in uh, in um, the novel. Right. But this uh, is first person alcoholic. <laughs> oh wow, that's great. Uh, J- Jim Thompson wrote one like that as well. Um, I think it's called the alcoholics. The alcoholics. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Jim Thompson was kind of a master of uh, crazy having that first-person narrative being really uh, morally bankrupt person. You know what? Right. I would love to see you do some Jim Thompson because it's it's right up your alley. Is it? Well, I actually Thompson? just released an ebook of Jim Thompson. Oh, really? Nothing more than murder. Wow. Really Any chance good. of an audio version? Oh, sure. Oh, awesome, awesome, awesome. I love it. I haven't, it hasn't been in, it's not in production as an audiobook yet, but I think okay. it will. Great. I really love it. Yeah, I, I just uh, tuned into that Wonder slash Wonder audio page and looking at the new stuff. One called Golden, no, Rule Golden by Damon Rule Knight. Gold. Yeah, click on that artwork. Click on that cover so it blows up. Be a little larger. Uh, it's hard to see still. Yeah, it's still not that big. Uh, That's when I, uh, that's the actual interior art to the story. It was ah. uh, Science Fiction Adventures or some magazine. I can't think of the name right now, but uh, that was the interior art, and I colorized it. Yeah, it, it, I, I, what I, of what I can see of it, it looks good. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of small. Um, but that's a really cool story, too. That's uh, There's an alien. You don't know what's going on at first. There's a newspaper reporter or publisher, and everything in the news is talking about how, like, a, a policeman shot somebody and then he collapsed, the policeman did. Mm-hmm. Or, like, two boxers hit each other and knock each other out con- uh, consecutively. Mm-hmm. And what happens is there's this alien, and anything you do to somebody affects you. So it's kind of like the backwards of the golden rule. Okay. Whatever you do to somebody happens to you. So if you, like, kill somebody, it'll, you'll die. <laughs> so nations and everything, you know, that war against one another, you know, obviously that's not going to work. So it's kind of like the collapse of civilization as we know it. And this guy, this reporter, ends up kidnapping or helping escape the alien escape. And it's it's a really good story. It's it's uh, in three hours, I think. Three hours, yeah. So it's you know not quite a novel. But definitely longer uh, that's, than short. That's okay. Uh, that's that's almost like the perfect length. I think um, uh, the fabulous clip joint was four or five hours, and I thought, oh, it's four or five hours. This is perfect length. And, uh, and by the end of it, I was hoping it was a little, you know, I could have another one. That right. was a really good, a perfect size meal. Now I'm getting hungry again. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I, I think there's something about that length that just, you know, you get just the right amount of development, you get the whole story finished, and then you say, that was really good, I need to buy another paperback just like that. You know. Yeah, that's what I like about the uh, the older stuff in the 50s and 60s and in the 70s. You know, the the novels were, you could, you know, if it's an audio book, it's five, six, seven hours. Yeah. And nowadays, they're like 18, 19 hours. And yeah. You know, it all depends on the book, of course. It you does. Know, it does. have to be that long, and they should be that long, and it could even be longer, you know. But just for listening to an audiobook, sometimes it can be uh, kind of fatiguing when you have Especially if there's a lot of filler and stuff, it's like, come on. <laughs> I think I think there's a sort of a feel that, um, you know, they are writing to a certain length, and therefore they bulk it up. Right. Um, I'm I'm looking. Worlds of the Imperium is also it's uh, just five. It says four hours fifty six minutes by Keith Laumer. That that's got to be the right length too. I, I haven't heard that one. It's read by Mark Nelson. Yep. Yep. That's a good alternate history story oh, novel good. where uh, he has to go back, well, not go back, go across to an alternate universe. He kind of gets kidnapped, and uh, he's working for an emporium, which is like a, the British, I think it's like the British kind of have control of this world more than like in our world, in mm-hmm. our universe. But anyways, he has a job to go assassinate somebody. And the person he assassinates is like this world leader guy, mm. but this world leader is actually him in this alternate universe. <laughs> that's a really cool twist. That's cool. Uh, you also have uh, this crowded Earth. Um, that's a similarly length item, but it comes with a couple by yeah, uh, got... Robert Block. Yeah, Robert Block, author of Psycho. He, uh, it's a novel. This crowded Earth. I think it's his only science fiction novel. And uh, it's a, it's an, it's, I don't know, Robert Block is such a strange author. It's, it, if I describe what happens in it, you know, this, it sounds kind of ridiculous and silly, but when you listen to it, it's totally serious. You know, it's, 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 it's pretty intense. It's uh, this crowded earth, you can kind of guess it's about overpopulation. Yeah. And what this happens to this guy is he kind of goes crazy from being, you know, the pressures of, of so many people, and he ends up. Well, I'll tell you what the government does. The government decides to solve the overpopulation problem is to give these women injections so that their children will only grow into like midget-sized people. <laughs> Which that's the ridiculous part. But then you read it and it's it's or listen to it, and it's not ridiculous at all. His treatment no. of it. No, oh, makes sense. Uh, um... And uh, but that's. Of course, it does have humor in it because Robert Block was a funny writer in the way that he. Could. Yeah, he's he's a zany sort of yeah. humor. And there's also yeah four short stories with that that um kind of they're all kind of different, which is the what I like. The old college try, Black Bargain, Founding Fathers, and A Good Imagination. They're all science fiction as well. Um, A Good Imagination, I think, is more straight horror. Okay. Uh, Founding Father is a humorous science fiction story, time travel. Uh, Black Bargain, that's more supernatural horror. Okay. And The Old College Try is uh, science fiction. But he also mixed horror and humor in that one. So he, he was really good at that. Yeah, he. I, I've read um, quite a few of his non-science fiction books. Um, 
maybe 10 years ago and I I found he he's sort of writing about stuff that other people write about but it, he never writes about it the same way they would right that's um, very cool you guys want one of those stories to add to the end of this podcast I would love to have one sure yeah okay. let's do it okay after this thing I'll send a file over to you Scott okay you can append Great. it sounds good we'll do Will that work? Did you uh, did you hear last week's uh, story? You probably been pretty busy. Uh, right? you know I didn't. Okay, I didn't. I have I a listen. It. It's it's I will. It's excellent. Um, James Powell. Um, actually, we should talk about this uh, at, at a later point. But I think you should uh, you should uh, branch out and start doing uh, James Powell stuff because uh, it's good. It's really good. He's a great writer. Um, I don't think he's got a giant giant following. Um, but he did have a new collection come out, and um, we've already got a couple recorded. <laughs> right. I got to sell you on this. I'll check it out for okay. sure. Um, Vanishing Venusians by Lee Brackett. Yeah, that's um, one hour twenty minutes. Was, uh, Lee Brackett was, uh, for people who don't know, was uh, married to Edmund Hamilton, but she was a great writer. She wrote a lot of, uh, she also wrote mysteries, the noir style, and she wrote fantastic science fiction that were kind of, they, they fit in that Planet Stories magazine. That yeah. Be venture, but it kinda, her characters, her main characters kind of had a... Uh, they were similar to the mysteries of the 50s where the author is kind of nihilistic and they're trying to just survive and and morally it's like a moral journey of what's right and wrong kind of thing and there's also hallucinations and things that happen in these stories you know drugs or whatever opium and uh in this specific case i can't remember if that's the case but it's uh this is just a desolate man and his journey across Venus with a kind of a tribe on boats or a group of people traveling by boats and they're just looking for some place to live in this hostile environment and they go up him and three other guys go up this uh, mountain and they they encounter all kinds of horrible aliens and that's all you need to know really but she also wrote westerns and she wrote for Hollywood she worked with uh, Howard Hawks a lot she wrote uh, Empire Strikes Back she wrote the screenplay to Empire Strikes Back. That was like her last thing. She passed away in the middle of it, in fact, of uh, writing that. And uh, I think Lawrence Kasdan finished that up for her. He's also a great writer, actually. Yeah, when he wants to be. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't really seen much by him lately. No, he sort of disappeared. He did uh, Body Heat, I think. Yeah, he, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the one. Yeah. But, uh, Neat. yeah, that's... It's a cool one, and there's Wolf Bane. That's another title. It's a novel mm-hmm. by Frederick Pohl and C.M. Cornbluth, who wrote oh, wow. The Space Merchants. Yeah. That's a really, uh, talk about your sense of wonder. I'm not going to go into all these titles, because we got like, I got ten of them, like I said. Mm-hmm. Plague of Pythons by uh, Frederick Pohl. Another, mm-hmm. that's a kind of a short novel. Yeah. Four hours and nine minutes, perfectly. <laughs> that, that, uh, that one sort of sounds like, um... Uh, the there's one by Robert Silverberg called Passengers. Mm-hmm. You know the one I mean. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a short story, I think, right? Passing yeah, down. yeah, it's a aliens come to Earth in the form of uh, spirits that take over human beings. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the same type of theme. You don't know if they're aliens or not at first uh, in Plague of Python. Mm-hmm. Pythons, uh, in fact, they're not aliens, but oh. that's not giving too much away. You find that out pretty soon in the book. Yeah, so Wolfbane is a... Uh, um... Another by Mark Nelson mm-hmm. says the Earth has been forcibly taken over from its orbit. Oh, taken from its orbit. It began with an extraterrestrial pyramid on top of Mount Everest, and then a runaway planet took the Earth as its binary. And now harsh generations have passed. And now harsh generations have passed since the inhabitants last saw the light of their sun. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's, they're all very, um, yeah, I, I really like those, uh, well, Frederick Pohl is just an awesome author. Yes. You know, I, I like their, they sort of complement each other. I find Frederick Pohl is very, um, uh, he's like, he's stuck in his own head a lot. Um, he's, all, he's always into psychology and psychiatry. Um, but when he works with CM Cornbluth, you get uh, a whole lot more. They're a good team. Yeah, you get more of a social satire type. Yeah. Although I wouldn't put Wolfbane as social satire exactly, but it is more a societal reaction to. The external. meek lambs have inherited the earth, even if the earth is very poor indeed. Hmm. That sounds good. What have you been listening to, Rick, other than. Uh, Making a lease. What have you been doing? How do I have time to listen to anything else? No, actually, that's uh, what I'm thinking. But I'm going to ask anyways. I just finished um, the Ghost Brigades by John Scalzi. Oh yeah, Mm. that's a great book. Did you uh, ever listen to that one? Learn to freeze. No, I listened to Old Man's War, but I haven't uh, heard or read anything past that one. I liked it very much. I heard it. Um, The first three quarters of it, I thought, was kind of maybe. Not that great. I was thought, yeah, this is okay. Nothing special. And then the last quarter of it, I think he really wrapped it up and entered some really interesting themes and everything. I thought it. It's it's not it's not the book that the first one is. Um, Old Man's War is is a, you know, if if he's going to if he died now, that's what people would remember, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the subsequent books, uh, I think there's a couple. Zoe's War is out, and a couple more. Zoe. Think, Zoe. Story. Zoe's story. Okay. Zoe's tale. Yeah. Oh, Zoe's I'm sorry. tale. <laughs> we'll get it. We'll get it. Zoe's something. Uh, yeah, I I think that the subsequent ones, at least a couple of them, are okay. They're they're also enjoyable, but they're not the first book. Mm-hmm. But it, which one? Is, there's the Ghost Brigade. There's a couple that I don't know if they really. There's uh, the Sagan Diaries. Sagan Diaries. Now, that one's... Uh, uh, yeah, and that's available. Uh, you can get that for free on uh, Subterranean. Right. Subterranean uh, Press. Yeah. Up, that's still up there. There's also oh, a professional... There, yeah. There's a professional version on Audible. It's read by one author. Where they did... Uh, the free one is like multiple readers. Like right, yeah. Each people read different chapters, and it's hmm. a little disconcerting. Sure. Um, and I also listened to Lord Valentine's Castle. 
Ah, oh, Robert Silverberg. Just saw that SFF Audio had a review. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Julie did that, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, she did. Yeah, she's highly recommended. I agree. It's a really good book. Um, I'm really a big Silverberg fan, and Silverberg briefly retired from science fiction in the early 70s. And then in the late 70s, I think, is when Lord Valentine's Castle came back. And it was kind of a new area for him in a way because it was it's more of a science fiction adventure novel, kind of more traditional, I guess, in a way. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a good novel for world building. The Majapur world is really huge, and it's got a different aliens and how they get along and everything. But um, when I first read the book back when it came out, I was kind of disappointed because I had just read a ton of Silverberg from the late 60s and early 70s when he was really, really good. Mm-hmm. And this book came out, and it was more entertaining and less deep, is how I'd describe it. But still a very good book. I, it was nice to revisit it after all these years, and you know, maybe I was being less of a snob about it, or I wasn't. My expectations weren't real high, and I thought, wow, this is really good. Uh, Stefan Rudnicki reads it. Yeah, he's. And you know, that's always solid. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's also some singing in it. There's some verse, you know that. So he had to like make up the tunes for it to oh. sing, and he did a really good job with that. I thought, you oh, know, good. it fit the uh, fit the uh, type of what you would expect to hear for that type of music, whatever you know the setting was. It was like, yeah, that sounded appropriate. But it's kind of funny because he's singing in a female voice at times, which he smartly doesn't try to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he because he's got the really deep resonant voice. Yeah, so. he does. Awesome reader, though. Yes, so that's cool. the last thing I've listened to as far as audiobooks. Other than your own yeah. stuff that's coming out. Other than my own stuff, yeah. So um, I've been I've been scouting for you. I've been thinking, who's who should be read? You know, I I I think I found Mark Douglas Nelson for you. I don't know that that's true, but I, I, that's how I feel. So I've been I've been taking it on as my unofficial job to look for more people for you. Uh, cool. to be narrators mm-hmm. and uh, the new guy who's making me very happy is called Greg Marguerite have you heard him uh-huh. on LibriVox? no okay you gotta check him out um, he's uh, he's very prolific which means he's fast right? right um, he's a very solid reader he needs a better mic um, he needs a, a better mic because what he's got is a little bit mm, it's not perfect but it's very, it's still very good, and I'm listening to one. I've been listening to it for a long time. I'm just gonna try and find it in, under LibriVox. Uh, Death World by Harry Harrison. Right. He's uh, which is a actually a fantastic book. Um, all about two thirds finished, and um, it's it's fast moving. Um, excellent book. Uh, I think you should. Uh, you should, uh, if you're looking for more narrators, you should look at this guy. Um, he also did, uh, um, you know, about two thirds of every, uh, um, maybe not, maybe a third of the last five um, uh, short fiction collections on LibriVox. He he picks great stories. Like he he doesn't just pick random stories. He picks the good ones. So I I think oh. Librivox, uh, Greg Marguerite, and I'm going to listen to that one first. It always ends up being a good story. Cool. So yeah, I, I will definitely come out. Yeah, ch- check that guy out and and see if you can scoop him up and give him a 
give them a uh, say, upgrade your mic with uh, this money that I'm going to pay you. <laughs> mm-hmm. no, that's, definitely, that's definitely a possibility to do that. Cool. I mean, um, right now, I don't know how much I should talk about it, but I've been kind of focusing less on the audiobooks. As you can tell, I only put out 10 in the past month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a lot, but... Uh... <laughs> no, I mean, a little sarcastic there. Um, I'm actually tapering off a little bit until next year mm-hmm. on audiobooks, just because... Uh, the way my contract is with Audible right now, I'll be able to renew it next year. Ah. And I'm not totally satisfied. I'm actually talking to them right now as far as maybe renegotiating. Mm-hmm. But uh, as things are right now, I'm just I'll, I'll still be putting out some titles, but I expect next year to be really about a year from now, mm-hmm. next summer, to really start putting them out again. Okay. Well, I've got I've got at least five or six of yours that I I see that I gotta I gotta make time for. So uh, I I can I can let you go on this issue. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you gotta stop like, development. It's not like nothing's coming out in the next year either. Uh, Mark Douglas Nelson is reading a couple uh, a Philip K. Dix short story for me. Cool. And uh, an Andre Norton story called. Uh, Mm-hmm. I don't remember what it's called, <laughs> but uh, good stuff, you know. So, and I'm sure William Kuhn's going to keep reading for me too, as well. Yeah, he's. I think he's developed. Like when you first got him, uh, I thought he's yeah, he's he's good. But um, I swear he was awesome in uh, in Fabulous Clip Joint. It's like right. um, it's like it's the, you know coming up to the major leagues and he became awesome. Yeah, he's got a, um, I've described described him as being very, you know, he's got that youthful voice. Mm-hmm. So if it's like a first person narrative of a young person, it works really well. Yeah. And he's yeah. got a uh, quality of empathy that I get a lot when I'm listening to him. Like, I really care about his characters that he's portraying. It's true. It's true. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got something interesting I'm working on right now that or I'm going to show you guys uh, one of my ebook titles from okay. Amazon for the Kindle check that out and uh, right now I'm working on getting a physical book printed it's going to be we mentioned a couple of these titles already it's, uh, it's going to be a Trade paperback. It's going to contain Wolfbane by Frederick Pohl and C.M. Cornbluth, The Syndic by C.M. Cornbluth, and uh, Plague of Python by Frederick Pohl. So it's going to be a trilogy kind of thing. Or omnibus, I guess you'd call it. So this is, uh, uh, you just sent me a link to something on Amazon. This, um, is, a, this is the Jim Thompson novel. Yeah. Now, my big problem is it says Kindle edition, so that you're just saying, screw you, Jesse, Canadians can't apply, because we can't have um, Kindles. Yeah, that's it, because I hate Canadians. That's right. And I try to figure out some way I can screw them over whenever you're, I can. You're, whenever you go outside, you spit at towards the Canadian border, don't you? That's right. You know, I'm pretty close to Windsor here. I know. It's, you know, it's not that far Where away. the Great Lakes came from, all that spitting. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Damn it! 
I want an audiobook version of this. No, it, it's definitely, you know, give me a year, year and a half. Right. And um, uh, cover is great. And I love, I love that it, it seems to have a, uh, uh, a, um, subtitle called Noir Masters. That makes me think there's going to be more of them. Oh, there's a ton of them. That are coming? Yeah. There are a ton of them as ebooks. You already have six reviews. Oh, maybe that's not just for you, but um, uh, yeah, it's, I think they attached it mix to the and title. match. Yeah, yeah. It's at four stars. Have you got a Kindle to try it out on? You know what? I don't even have a Kindle. Yeah, you don't need one. <laughs> I don't need one. Just as long as you you, you can look at. Something. They have a uh, you know a uh, simulator, so I can see what it will look a Kindle like. Kindle simulator <laughs> on the screen before I actually publish it to make sure it converted everything right. If you don't want funny little question marks where there's supposed to be M dashes and stuff. Yeah, it, it doesn't really appeal to me at all, the Kindle, just because it, it if it can't do color, then I won't be using it because I, I want to read comics. That's the only thing I want to read uh, in text anymore unless it's, you know, uh, instruction manual on how to fix something. I didn't know you were a comics guy. Oh, I love comics. As long as as long as it's well written, you know, I'm there. I just got oh. uh, I just got the uh, Roy Thomas uh, adaptation of the Iliad. Um, oh, okay. That was done recently. I got um, I got the la- I finally got the very last uh, Garth Ennis um, written Punisher. Uh, something called From the First to the Last, which. I was thinking, oh, it's gonna, it'll be okay, but man, first story in it, bam, awesome, and uh, yeah, any anything well written in comics, I'm there. Cool. But yeah, yeah until it's, it's color, what what what, you, what what's it gonna do for me? Nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you can read comics. You can read what? Black and white. Black and white. Yeah, but they're they're not available on the Kindle, right? And you can't import your own I stuff. Know can't import your own stuff uh, the drm is one thing but with with no picks with no picks even to uh you know i, I don't think they do comic books I, I don't think but if they did it's still it's black and white and most comics are not black and white anymore so it's unlikely there'd be much there yeah i'm going to show you guys uh ebook i just published yesterday for the kindle which I hope to do as an audio book. If I figure out, I don't use Skype that often, so. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> okay, it should be popping up. It's a historical novel. Golden Slave by Paul Anderson. Yes. Hmm. What What's the setting? Uh, it's Rome, 100 BC. Uh, they don't have the description up yet because I just published it yesterday. It takes a little oh. while for the description to pop up. It'll it'll show up eventually. How how are this? Uh, how how long have you had um, Kindle books up? Um, I think February or March of this year. Okay, so is there been any action? Do you know if they're selling well? Yeah, they're doing pretty good. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I just I guess there's so many people in the states they can go without Canadians and not care. You guys don't use real money up there. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Our 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 money is like that colored we money. We keep it's it funny. in the bank, and we don't we don't throw it around to anybody. We just we just 
keep it in our bank and don't do much with it. It's mostly so debit. What have you guys been uh, listening to? Have you already talked about that? Uh, I I don't think we have. have we? I, I talked about uh, Rocketman. Rocketman, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm listening. I'm halfway through the middle of um of uh, the Lies of Locke Lamora by uh, Scott Lynch. Wow. And uh, I was telling Steen about it. My friend Steen, who's in Toronto now, by the way, near nearby, he's spitting down towards Detroit <laughs> or Detroit area. So everybody spits down. Yeah, it's you know that's creating the Great Lakes there. Um, and uh, I was telling him that it's it's like uh, grown ups, <laughs> which uh, I guess was a little bit mean. But also um, saying that it was compressed because it's it's the story of a kid who goes to thieves school and um, or con man school. In fact, it starts off as like petty petty criminal school, and then uh, upgrades to a different school, uh, you know, high school version of uh, con man school sort of thing. And uh, but it's compressed, so instead of growing up over seven novels, he grows up over one. Uh, and it's very well written. I, I'm quite enjoying it. It's uh, like Lank. It's kind of like Lankmar and Oliver Twist together. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. So it's it's young adult, but it's good young adult. It's only young adult in the sense that it's got young people in it. Uh, there's tons of swearing um, and really funny uh, uh, variations on swearing, I guess. Um, and that makes me laugh and want to recommend it to teenagers just because it will make them laugh too but yeah it's it's not it's uh, it's not it's it's about thieves which is a lot more cynical than uh, than about you know wizards I guess There's, I think Harry Potter doesn't have any um, any cynicism at all does it no so it's mm. much more up my alley than mm. uh, than was the Rowling. Huh. Very much enjoying it. Yeah. Another one I have to get written up is uh, Dune Messiah by Frank Herbert. I listened to that recently and uh, was surprised at how much I liked it. I, I liked it a lot. You know, I am a You're Dune stuff fan. I, I've really liked uh, the first Dune novel, but I never ever read past it. So. Um, Anyway, I've got all the Dune novels on audio uh, sent in from Macmillan Audio. So I tried Dune Messiah, and it's about a seven-hour um, audiobook. It's uh, much shorter than Dune. But it's so much different. It's um, you know, It takes yeah. place about 12 years after the events in Dune, so Paul Atreides is, you know, all being master of space and time or whatever. <laughs> and uh, But things are falling apart for him because... Um, people are doing things in his name that you know he's not approving of but um he's just lost control of what he created and that was an interesting take i know john w campbell did not like it um because you know dune was the this build-up of a huge hero and then uh dune messiah is really his fall and uh nobody is interested in reading about the fall i guess but I, i thought it was terrific if you're going to build up someone like that, you got to introduce the kryptonite. You know, it's yeah, like a yeah. Superman thing. It's like, okay, he's perfect. He's all knowing, he's all seeing, and everything. Now, what do you do? You got to, you got to yeah. pull up 
kryptonite. And Make him pull just, out his eyes and wander the desert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I, I kind of, I know I did, I did the first three Dune books, and uh, after that I said no more. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think this, you should end at the second one. You go to the first one, and then you, if you want to end on a high, you stop there. But I think the second book is awesome, if only for one thing. Uh, it, maybe the rest of it sucks, but the Gola, you know, yeah. the Duncan idea Idaho. of 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 having somebody alive but not really, um, you know, used to be your mm. friend. There's his body, but he's not exactly the way he was. Uh, I think that's a very good yeah. That was an interesting aspect of it, you know. And then the the aspect of uh, you know Paul Atreides in uh, Dune had you know this clairvoyant thing going on. Mm-hmm. And in Dune Messiah, it becomes a burden to him because, um, you know, it's almost a, as if he is acting out a role at uh, some point in the book. And then um, later on, um, you know, there's an accident uh, where he loses his sight. And the, clair- the clairvoyance is how he can see. He's, he can see so clearly the future that he's able to... Uh, that was clever, too. Yeah, he's able to operate without any sight whatsoever but um just he's basically looking into the future you know a a fraction of a second ahead and then he's able to cruise around that way um but i've done some research uh about frank herbert you know since that because it's kind of intriguing you know uh but one of the things that he was trying to get across with dune and dune messiah um, is the idea of a charismatic leader, the, the danger of an ultra-charismatic leader. And, um, you know, we, we have one of those right now in the United States, you know, President Obama. <laughs> and it, it's interesting, you know, from that aspect, you know, uh, because, you know, Paul Atreides kind of lost, he lost control. You know, people, you know, were following him, they were following him zealously, and then he you know, he lost control. They're doing things in his name that, you know, maybe they think that he'd like or, or whatever, but, you know, people are being killed and then that kind of stuff. And it was just interesting that uh, back then, Frank Herbert, um, he didn't like John F. Kennedy for that reason um, and blamed him for Vietnam, I believe. Um, but these are kind of things I'm learning about Frank Herbert. I, I don't know, I don't even know, to be honest with you, if he's, you know, liberal or conservative or, or what. He's an um, eco guy, I think. Yeah, he is an eco guy. And I don't think he was trying to make a political point on which one's better. It was just the idea of a charismatic leader um, frightened him. He didn't think it was good. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, you know it's, it's just an interesting thing to think about. You know, I don't mm-hmm. have yeah. an opinion either way either, you know. But uh, I'm sure that he would have some things to say about uh, President Obama, just because of you know his uh, popularity. You know, uh, is that going to lead to some bad decisions? You know, well, I'm, bad, sure some, bad I'm sure some people will think so. Oh I, yeah, I guarantee it. Well, you know, <laughs> almost half the country anyway. He seems right. to be fairly. Um, uh, we don't usually talk about politics, but mm-hmm. I would say he, he seems to be fairly conservative in what he's actually done. He hasn't really done anything that is rocked any boats. That you know. No, you don't listen no. to Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was going to say <laughs> I don't true. think so. That's he's, true. I don't. No, he's. Uh, 
Well, he's spending an awful lot of money. Um, you know that that's the liberal. Well, actually, that that started back the previous guy, but yeah, yeah, and Bush was not conservative <laughs> like, either. Bush was not a fiscal conservative at all. There was Reagan, mm-hmm. and neither was uh, Clinton. So yeah, but yeah, now it's it's an in- interesting discussion that's going on here in the states. Yeah, yeah, there sure is. But you know, just just you know, to get back to Herbert, you know, the the idea of the charismatic leader, you know, I'd heard the original Dune described as a, you know, the effect of a messiah on a culture, you know. So, um, but you know, I, I don't know that I really got that out of Dune because, um, you know, the culture was so unique and foreign, I guess, um, that, you know, I, I wasn't really, you know, it would be interesting to read a novel about an effect on a the effect of a messiah on the culture now you know that would be an interesting thing to read about but to have um dune be so um you know building it up building it up you know paul is good and uh, everything about this is is good you know he's the good guy in this book and then you read dune messiah and he's he's not really anymore i don't i don't know that i would read thing. that into the first book as much as to say uh um He's he's our viewpoint character. He's our protagonist. Mm-hmm. But but well, I, don't I was think rooting they for him. You know, he, he, was, he was against the Harkonnens. Yeah, yeah and, you're you're and, rooting uh, for them, but yeah. but uh, you know he's not. It's not like what he's he's wandering around. You know, healing the sick. No, he's no. basically just doing what he's doing smart stuff, and that no, makes he's, you. He's liberating. He's liberating a people. He's. Uh, I don't think so. I I I don't get the sense that he's liberating anyone. Mm-hmm. Um. He, his he, his his uh, his father's government is less repressive than the previous one. That's mm-hmm. good, but sure. they're still part of the same corporate <laughs> domination, you know, of of this planet. Yeah. Um, well, that's true. That's true. I, I I don't see I don't see like he's he's not a messiah figure in the sense that he's a, a peaceful figure. He's only a messiah figure in the sense that he was prophesized, and uh, he's going to be the war leader. Uh huh. Right. Right. Well, not, that's yeah. that's so. That's true. He's, he's a war guy. He's not a. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I I don't ever think you know good and evil really came into it. Harkonnens are definitely uh, sadistic. Uh huh. But I, I would just say that's poor management. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul Paul was definitely the hero in that book. Yes, he's definitely he's the definitely hero, pagan. and that's a heroic journey and all that. Uh, Joseph Campbell. I, I don't know. Stuff. I don't know about hero has a positive connotation. Yeah, he's definitely had, the yeah. Pagan. When I read Dune, you know, I had that positive connotation all the way through it. He's he was definitely a hero. Mm. You know, and then um, of the heroic mold of the heroic mold, not, exactly. He was going but, on that hero's journey that we hear so much about. And then in Dune Messiah, it all crashes out about his ears. But that, I'm just saying, you know, it's not a typical way for uh, uh, novels to go, which is in itself extremely interesting to me. You know, he could have, uh, you know, said, oh, if, if in Dune Paul was great, in Dune Messiah he's going to be even greater. And uh, no, no, he's not. You know, he's he's just like a lot of other people, you know. 
Yeah, I I don't I I don't think the uh, b- other books should have been written. I think they should have mm. just left it as. Well, book. yeah. Next is Children of Dune. I haven't started that yet. I'm, that's a few audiobooks down the road, um, but I will listen to it, see what it's like. But there was enough of interest in Dune Messiah that I would recommend reading it. And it's not a big book either. It's not as big as Dune. In fact, it's about a uh, less than half the size, I would say. Yeah, it's pretty small. Yeah. You know, Rick, uh, you you have this um, historical novel. What's it called? The Golden uh, Slate. Yeah. Um, I've been listening to uh, some uh, historical mysteries called Falco. They're uh, by um, Lindsay Davis is the name of the author in there. Private PI stories set in ancient Rome. Okay. Um, really good stuff. It's uh, they're radio dramas. Uh, there's also audiobooks out there, but I've been listening to the radio drama version done by the BBC and did one review of of the one I started with, and I I'm caught up to the the latest one. I'm just listening to it now, and uh, it's it's like a um, private investigator. Uh, in ancient Rome, he's working for the Emperor Vespasian. He calls himself a private informer, and basically he does investigations of crime and theft and corruption uh, all around the empire. So he travels to Germ- Germania and to England, uh, trying to basically a troubleshooter, and uh, also takes private cases. Um, it's a it's very historical it has a lot of um uh uh actual history and um you know uh, problems that you would find in rome like uh when you don't have building codes <laughs> what happens you know uh your your buildings collapse you keep building them higher and higher and then you have a public street collapse and you can sort of see the development uh, why people start thinking building codes are a really good idea um, lots of lots of historical meat in there, but what's interesting about it is it also has a a, a lot of uh, references to 20th century um, uh, mysteries, mystery writing. So he'll the the character Marcus Didius Falco is his name. Um, Falco is kind of a you know Maltese Falcon sort of name. Um, he he will drop a line that is basically a, right out of uh, Casablanca or something. Uh, so he'll say something like, uh, of all the of all the wine bars in all the world, she had to walk into mine. Or not wine bars, it would be, you know, vineyards. <laughs> something like that. Um, right. Lots of great little references. Very well written um, and brilliantly acted. Um, you can get that through Radio Downloader. I don't know if you tried that out, but I don't think we talked about that on uh, previous podcast. Did no, we, Scott? I don't. I don't recall doing that. Mm-mm. Okay. I well, the posting on that. I thought I would try it, but I haven't been listening to a lot of like BBC Radio lately, so I kind of forgot about it. Yeah, you know, you've been busy, but uh, yeah. definitely download Radio Downloader. It's a it's a piece of software that uh, interfaces with uh, iTunes. No, not iTunes. Uh, BBC iPlayer. And it gives you a little preview of what what's uh, coming up on on BBC iPlayer, which is just you know the internet version of the BBC radio stations, and um, and then you can bookmark uh, upcoming shows or past shows and 
have them automatically be downloaded and converted into MP3 uh, for, for you. The only thing it doesn't do is interface with iTunes or any other player. You have to drag and drop those files into iTunes or whatever uh, software you're using. But other than that, it's it's brilliant. It, it, it takes all the work out of um, going to the website and you know pressing record when it when you press play. It's hey, amazing like, stuff. Uh, historical mysteries. Have you heard of Ellis Peters? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard a bunch of those. The Brother Cadfo. Yeah, where they're like uh, medieval, right? Mm-hmm. Medieval pretty... England. Yeah, he's like a a monk or a priest or. Yeah, he's a monk. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, I got uh, a few. Dirk and Hayes did some um, ones with uh, the guy, um, Derek Jacoby, reading them as well as he, he was on the television series as well. Oh. So it's kind of like The Name of the Rose, but not uh, not as uh, big budget. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Excellent movie, by the way. Yeah, an amazing movie. Cool. My all-time favorite. It's it's uh it's, it's classic mystery in a strange setting. And I've never read the book because I can never find an unabridged novelized audiobook of it. Hmm, somebody should do that. The hefty tome. No doubt. Yeah, yeah. Here's one of those links where maybe it is worth all those extra pages or hours. Who, who wrote that? Uh, Echo. Echo, yeah. Umberto, yeah, Umberto, Umberto Echo. Echo. Yeah. Right. That sounds right. I hear Echo in here. <laughs> Umberto Echo, Echo, Echo. Mm. It's good. Yeah. So what story are you going to give us? Oh, um... You know, I think I'm going to give you... Uh, i got to get back there that page. Hang on a minute. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I think I'll give you Founding Fathers. Okay. That's the... The, the light, funny one. That's the time travel uh, one? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah, thank so you. You can check that out if people like it. I, uh, You know, go to audible.com slash wonderaudio and buy the whole... Yeah, it's uh, read by William Kuhn, so it's going to be a, a good read. Founding Fathers First published in Fantastic Universe, July 1956 1. Early on the morning, July 4th, 1776... Thomas Jefferson poked his peruked head into the deserted chamber of what was to be known as Independence Hall and yelled, Come on, you guys, the coast is clear. As he stepped into the big room, he was followed by John Hancock, who puffed nervously on a cigarette. All right, Jefferson said. Ditch the butt, will ya? You want to louse us up, creep? Sorry, boss. Hancock glanced around the place, then addressed a third man who entered behind him. Dig this, he murmured. Not an ashtray in the joint. What kind of setup we got here anyway, Nunzio? The third man scowled. Don't call me Nunzio, he growled. The name's Charles Thompson, remember? Okay, Chuck. Charles. 
The third man dug John Hancock in the ribs. Straighten that wig of yours. You look like something out of a Boy Scout pageant yet. John Hancock shrugged. Well, what do you expect? Guy can't even smoke, and these here britches are so tight I'm scared to sit down in them. Thomas Jefferson turned and confronted him. You ain't gonna sit down, he said. All you gotta do is sign and keep your yap shut. Let Ben do the talking, remember? Ben? Benjamin Franklin, schmo, said Thomas Jefferson. Somebody mentioned my name? The short, fat, balding man hurried into the room, carefully adjusting square-lensed spectacles to the bridge of his nose. What took you so long? Thomas Jefferson demanded. You run into trouble back there? No trouble, Benjamin Franklin replied. They're out cold, and the gags are holding. It's just these glasses. The lenses distort my vision. I'd forgotten I'd have to wear them. Can't you ditch them? No. Somebody might get suspicious. Franklin peered at his companions over the top of the spectacles. They're likely to get suspicious anyway if you don't do what I told you. He glanced around the room. What time is it? Thomas Jefferson fumbled with the ruffles at his sleeves and gazed down at the face of his wristwatch. 7.30, he announced. You're sure? Checked it with Western Union. Never mind that Western Union talk. And take off that thing. Put it in your pocket. It's stuff like that can get us into trouble. Trouble? John Hancock groaned. These here shoes are killing me. They ain't nearly my size. Well, wear them and be quiet, Benjamin Franklin told him. I wish to God you'd remember to shave, too. Fine thing, the President of the Continental Congress on the most important day of our history, coming in without shaving. I forgot. Also, there was no place to plug in an electric shaver. Well, never mind now. The main thing is just to be quiet and remember what you're supposed to do. Mr. Jefferson, do you have the declaration? Nobody answered. Franklin strode up to the tall man in the peruke. Jefferson, that's you I'm talking to. I forgot, the big man smiled sheepishly. You'd better not forget. Now, where is it? Right here in my pocket. Well, get it out. We've got to sign right away before anybody else shows up. I expect they'll start drifting in around eight at the latest. Eight? Jefferson sighed. Do you mean to tell me they go to work that early here? Our friends in the back room looked as if they'd been working all night, Franklin reminded him. Ain't they never heard of union hours? No, and don't you mention it either. Franklin surveyed his companions earnestly. That goes for all of you. Watch your tongues. We can't afford a slip-up. Telling me? Charles Thompson took the parchment from Thomas Jefferson and unfolded it. Careful with that, Franklin warned. Pipe down, will ya? I just want to take a look at it, Thompson replied. I ain't never seen that there thing. He glanced at the manuscript curiously. Hey, dig this crazy handwriting. It's all lettering like He spread the declaration on a table and squinted down at it, mumbling aloud. When, in a course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the oith the separate... Hey, what kind of double talk is this, anyway? Why these guys write English, huh? Never mind. Ben Franklin took the parchment from him and strode to a desk. I'm going to revise it right now. He rummaged around in the drawer, 
finding fresh parchment and a quill pen. I'm not up to copying the lettering style, I'm afraid, but I can explain that to the Congress easily enough. I'll tell them that Jefferson here made his last-minute changes in a hurry. The hurry part of it is no lie. He bent over the blank parchment and studied the declaration as it rested alongside. Got to keep the style, he said. Very important. But the main thing is to add the provisions at the end. Provisions? John Hancock brightened. We're going to have some grub, hey? I'm starved. That can wait, Jefferson snapped. Now keep still and let the guy work. This is the most important part of the whole caper, understand? Then there was silence in the room. Silence except for the busy scratching of the quill pen as Benjamin Franklin wrote. Jefferson stood over his shoulder, nodding from time to time. Don't forget to put in that part about me being temporary boss, he said, and stick in that we need a treasurer. Franklin nodded impatiently. I've got it all down here, he answered. Nothing to worry about. Think they'll sign? Sure they'll sign. It's only logical. Right after the part about being free and independent states, there should be a mention of a temporary governing arrangement. They can't object to that. Wonder why it was left out in the first place. Search me, Jefferson shrugged. How would I know? Well, you're supposed to have written it. Oh, yeah, that's right. Franklin finished, sat back, and poked at Jefferson's chest with his quill. Cough, he said. Jefferson coughed. Again. Louder. What's the big idea? You've got laryngitis, Franklin told him. A bad case. That's why you're not talking. Anyone asks you any questions, you just cough, right? Okay, I didn't want to talk anyway. Franklin gazed at Hancock and Thompson. You two better sign and disappear. When the gang arrives, you go in the back room and keep an eye on our buddies there. I'll make up some excuse why you're not around. Can't take the risk of having you cornered and questioned. Got it? The two men nodded. Franklin extended the quill pen. Here, you two are supposed to sign first. As John Hancock reached for the pen, Franklin chuckled. Just put your John Hancock right here. Hancock signed with a flourish. He gave the pen to Charles Thompson. Remember, you're the secretary, Franklin said as Thompson dipped the quill in the inkwell. What's the matter? That quill too clumsy for you? Sure it's clumsy, Thompson said. And these clothes are moita, and none of us guys knows how to talk. We can't get away with this, thinka. We're going to make some mistakes. Franklin stood up. We're going to make history, he declared. Just follow orders and everything will be all right. He paused and lifted his hand. In the immortal words of myself, Benjamin Franklin, we must all hang together, or assuredly we shall all hang separately. Two. They had hung together for a long time in Philly, Sammy, Nunzio, Mush, and Thinker Tomaszewski. They shoved a little queer, peddled a few decks, but mostly they made book. It was a nice setup for all of them, particularly since the Thinker came into the deal. The Thinker was a genuine shyster with a degree and an office and everything, and he fronted for the outfit. The funny part of it was, Thinker Tomaszewski had a regular law practice too, and he could have made a pretty nice piece of change without cutting corners but he worked with them for kicks at first. The only way I can explain it, he told them, is that I don't seem to have a superego. Always with the two-dollar words, 
That was the thinker. And it was his two-dollar words that finally got them into trouble. In the beginning, everything was fine. Using his law office as a front, he had no difficulty in getting acquainted with a better class of mark. Not the two bucks on the nose working stiff, but heavy betters. He steered them to Sammy or Nunzio or Mush, and they made big book. They made a big buck, too. So big that they just had to place a few bets of their own with some of the top wheels like Mickey Tarantino. Playing it smart, of course, and working only on inside tips when they were sure of a horse getting the needle. Came an afternoon when the needle stuck, and they were stuck for twenty grand. Mickey Tarantino held out his hand and smiled, but the smile vanished when Sammy went to him and said he needed time to pay up. What do you mean? Mr. Tarantino had inquired. You guys are loaded. Look at all the rich suckers you make book with. All we got to show for it is markers, Sammy confessed. It's like your old man's delicatessen. The poor guys pay, and the high-class trade puts it on the cuff. You know how those big operators work. Well, it's the same in our line. You can't collect from them. You damn well better collect, Mr. Tarantino advised, because you got until tomorrow morning, or else you wind up in Potter's Field or wherever. So Sammy went away and called a meeting at Thinker Tomaszewski's office and broke the news. Thinker had news for them, too. Tarantino isn't the only one who thinks we're rolling in the stuff, he announced. Uncle Sam is looking down our throats for a little matter of back income taxes. Great, Sammy groaned. Tarantino's hood's in front of us and the federal fink's behind us. Which way do we turn? I suggest you turn to your clients, Thinker answered. Call on some of our investors and ask them to redeem their markers. So Sammy and Nunzio and Mush called, and early that evening they assembled and pooled results. Three grand, Sammy snorted. Three lousy grand. Is that all? The thinker was genuinely mystified. I should have thought you'd get more than that. Sure, we got more. Excuses we got, promises we got, brush-offs we got. But here's the moolah, three grand, period. How about Cobbett? Thinker asked. Professor Cobbett? He's your baby, isn't he? The thinker nodded. Professor Cobbett was indeed his baby, one of the upper crust. What's he into us for? Sammy demanded. About eight, I think. Eight and three is eleven, not so hot. But if we could get it fast, maybe Tarantino would hold off for a while. Let's get it fast. Mush suggested. Let's go out and see old Cobbett right now. So they all piled into Sammy's car and went out to see old Cobbett. The professor had a country place, a nice layout for a man who lived all alone, and he was cordial and pleasant when he greeted the thinker on the front porch. He was not quite so cordial or pleasant when he learned what the thinker wanted, and he was downright inhospitable when the thinker beckoned and his three companions appeared out of the darkness. They had to stick their feet in the door, and they had to stick their heaters in his ribs. No foolin', Nunzio told him. We want our loot. Oh, dear, said Professor Cobbett as they marched him backwards into his own parlor. But I have no money. Don't con us, Mush told him. Look at this joint, all this fancy furniture. Mortgaged, the professor sighed. Mortgaged to the hilt and past it. What about this here school where you teach at? Mush asked. You could maybe brace them for some advanced dough on your salary, huh? 
I am no longer connected with the university. What gives here? Sammy wanted to know. Yes, Thinker added. I thought you were a wealthy man. The professor shrugged and ran his hand through his graying hair. Things are not always what they seem, he said. For example, I considered you to be a reputable professional man. And when I innocently inquired about the possibilities of placing a small bet on the races, I never dreamed you were associated with these ruffians. Watch that talk, Sammy warned. We ain't no more ruffians than eight grand is a small bet. Now, what do you mean about things ain't always what they seem? Well, it's like this, the professor answered. I did have a certain sum of money set aside, yes, and I did have a position of some eminence at the university. The fact that both money and position are gone today can be attributed to one thing, my private research project. The cost of experimental models reduced my savings. The revelation of my theories cost me my faculty position. An attempt to raise funds to continue my work led me to the last resort, betting on the races. Now I have nothing. You can say that again, Sammy told him. In about three minutes, you're going to have nothing with lace around it. Wait a moment, the thinker interrupted. Experimental models, you said. What have you been building? I'll show you if you like. Come on, Sammy ordered. Boys, keep the heat as warm in case he pulls a funny. But the professor didn't pull a funny. He led them downstairs to what had been the basement and was now an ornate private laboratory. He led them up to the large rectangular metal structure covered with coils and tubing. It had a vague resemblance to an outhouse designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Geez, Nunzio commented. What you doing, building one of them there Frankensteins? I bet it's a spaceship, Mush hazarded. Was you going to maybe get away to Mars? Please, the professor sighed. You're making sport of me. We're making hamburger of you in another minute. Sammy corrected him. This doojigger ain't no use to us. Couldn't get twenty bucks for it at a junkyard. Thinker Tomaszewski shook his head. Just what is this object, Professor? Professor Corbett blushed. I hesitate to designate it as such, after the rebuffs I received at the hands of supposed authorities, but there is no other intelligible term for it. It is a time machine. Oof! Sammy put his hand to his forehead. And this is what we let get into us for eight grand. A nutty scientist yet. The thinker frowned at him. A time machine, you say? An instrument capable of transporting one forward or backwards in time? Backwards only, the professor answered. Forward travel is manifestly impossible, since the future is non-existent, and travel is not the best word. Transit more closely approximates the meaning, insofar as time possesses no material or spatial characteristics, being bound to a three-dimensional universe by the single observable phenomenon which manifests itself as duration. Now if duration is designated as X and... Shut up, Nunzio suggested. Let's kiss off this joker and scram out of here. We're wasting time. Wasting time, the thinker nodded. Professor Corbett, is this a working model? I'm practically positive. It has never been tested, but I can show you formulae which... Never mind that now. Why haven't you tested it? Because I'm not sure of the past. Or rather, our present relationship to it. 
If any person or object in present time were sent to the past, alterations would occur. What is here now would be absent, and something added to what was there then. This addition would alter the past, and if the past were altered, then it would not be the same past we know. He frowned. It's hard to state without recourse to symbolic logic. You mean you're afraid that by time travel you'd change the past, or come out in a different past, a past made different because you traveled into it? That's an oversimplification, but you have the general idea. Then what good is your work on this? No good, I'm afraid, but I wanted to prove a point. It became an almost monomaniacal obsession. I have no excuses. So, Sammy stepped forward. Thanks for the lecture, but like you say, you got no excuses, and we got no time. This here basement looks like a nice soundproof place for target practice. The thinker grabbed Sammy's arm. What's the sense? He asked. The guy welched. So he welched. Will murder change that? Will murder help us now? No, Sammy bit his lip. But what we gonna do? We got no dough. We got Tarantino after us, and also the government. We can't go back to town. The thinker looked around. Why not stay here then? We're safe, isolated with a nice big roof over our heads. Let's enjoy the professor's hospitality for a while. Yeah, Mush said. But how long? We're gonna run out of dough or food or something. We'd just be stalling for time. The thinker smiled. Stalling for time. He gazed intently at the complicated structure in the center of the cellar. But here is the logical vehicle for a getaway. You mean jump in that dizzy outfit and beat it? Sammy demanded. You're kidding. I'm serious. The thinker replied. Sometime in the near future, we'll be safe in the past. Three. It took a lot of figuring. That was the thinker's job, working with the professor during the next few days. How do you set the controls up? Is this for steering? You do not steer. You press the computers. Here, I'll show you again. And you can choose any time in the past, any time at all. Asked the thinker. Theoretically, the main problem is accurate computation. Remember, we and our Earth are not static. We do not occupy the same position in space that we did an instant ago, let alone a longer period. We must consider the speed of light, planetary motion, inclination, and that's going to be your department. But you can establish past position mathematically and set up a guiding plan for the computers accordingly. I'm reasonably certain of it. Then all that remains is to determine where, or rather when, we're going to. Sammy and Nunzio and Mush tackled that problem on their own. Geez, maybe all's we got to do is go back a couple weeks to before when the professor made his bets. Then we ain't out no dough. Yeah, what about them there back taxes? So we go to before when we owed 'em. That's when we went into business, stupid. We was broke. Well, if we can go anywhere as we want in time, how's about way back to the Egyptians, like? I seen one of them there pitches. They had all these hot broads running around in their underwear. You talk Egyptian, stupid. Besides, we don't want to stay back somewhere forever. Why I figure we got some time where we can lay our mitts on some loot real fast, like, and then come back. No, you got it. That's the angle. Hey, how about that there gold rush? The professor interrupted them. 
I'm afraid the gold rush wouldn't be of much use to you gentlemen. After all, it occurred in the year 1849. But you can send us to 1849, can't you? Conceivably, if my theory is correct. But you would not be in California. You would still be right here in Philadelphia, in the field which stood here before this house was built. Then we gotta find our loot in Philly, huh? Somewheres in the past? I'm afraid so. Geez, and we can't show up in no vacant field with that machine either. Then the thinker took over. I am beginning to pinpoint our problem, he announced. Professor, I am going to utilize your library for a day or so. Perhaps I can discover when gold was available in Philadelphia. There's always the mint. Too well guarded. We'd never be able to loot it any more than it could have been looted by past efforts. Thanks, Sammy brightened. With our heaters, we could knock over one of them big jugs easy, say a hundred years ago. And come out with what? Old-fashioned greenbacks? We wouldn't be able to use currency of that era today. Arouse suspicion? No, I'm looking for gold. Finally, in a copy of Berkeley's Of the Revolution, the thinker found it. He broke in upon the others as they sat guarding Professor Cobbett. Here's the answer, he exulted. Remember what happened in Philadelphia on July 4th, 1776? That's a holiday, ain't it? Nunzio brightened. Must be the Phillies took on the Giants in a doubleheader. 1776, stupid, Sammy scowled. Yeah, I remember. They made Washington the president. Nah, it was the Declaration of Independence, Mush corrected. Right. The Declaration of Independence was presented to the Continental Congress assembled at what is now Independence Hall, and so forth. But here's another little-known fact. At the same place, on the same day, the revolutionary treasury was turned over to a small group for temporary storage. It consisted of upwards of 30,000 pounds sterling in smelted ingots. That's about $150,000 in gold. Brother, Sammy whistled. What a way to celebrate the fourth. Then he frowned. I'll bet they had plenty gods around. No, that's just the point. It was all a secret. Few people know of it to this day. Troops brought it in a wagon around noon. They thought they were hauling documents. It was carted upstairs, and no guards were posted lest suspicion be aroused. Its presence was known only to Benjamin Franklin... Thomas Jefferson, and one or two others, probably John Hancock and maybe Charles Thompson, the Secretary of the Congress. It was to be used to pay troops and buy supplies. It sure could help pay off old Mickey Tarantino and the feds and leave us plenty to spare. That is exactly what I had in mind, gentlemen, the thinker smiled. Now all that remains is to work out the details. I shall concentrate on the historical aspect, and the professor here can work out the mathematical computations. Professor Cobbett blanched. Mathematical computations? But you're asking the impossible. Why, that was over 180 light years ago. We'll be faced with the problem of billion-fold magnitudes, and the slightest error or variation can have serious consequences. Ain't gonna be no errors, Sammy told him or consequences will be really serious for you. He showed the professor his heater. Now get to work. We're going places. Going places, Mush looked at him. All this here stuff was at Independence Hall. The machines here in the cellar. 
we gonna come out on July 4th in a cow pasture or something? That's your job, Sammy decided. Case this joint. See how it's set up for guards at night. Alarm system? The works. Look it over like you would a bank job. I think we can take over. Nobody's gonna think a mob would break into a hysterical shrine or whatever. We get things set. We hire us a truck and cart the machine right down to the hall and take off from there some night soon. Right? Hey, that's a tough deal. Things are tough all over, Sammy said. Now get going. So Mush got going, and the professor got going, and the thinker got going too. And before the first week was up, they were organized. Mush made his report. The invasion of Independence Hall could be made without too much trouble. Of course, it would cost money for the truck, and there might be repercussions, but they could try to pull it off. And in view of their present hopeless situation, and in view of the possible gain, it was worth the gamble, Sammy decided. The professor presented them with the working manual based on his computations. Are you sure this gets us there? Sammy demanded. And back to... Look it over, the professor said. See for yourself. It's all right, the thinker told him. I've checked it. See, we have no set time for return. Our plans call for us to get the gold and come back as soon after the noon hour as possible. So the professor has worked out return variations based on five-minute intervals throughout the early afternoon. It's as foolproof as we can hope to make it. All right, if you say so, Sammy shrugged. But what I want to know is, what do we do when we get there? I've been working on that angle, the thinker said, checking all the source books and references I could muster, history texts, biographical data on Franklin and Jefferson in particular, and I've got a plan. Apparently the first ones to arrive that morning were Jefferson and Thompson. Franklin and John Hancock came in early, too. It's not quite clear whether any of them spent part of the night there. The important thing is that the four men conceivably held an early morning meeting discussing the declaration before the Congress convened on the 4th. So if we arrive early enough, we'll be dealing with just four men. The four men who knew about the gold, by the way. Got it, Sammy said. We come in, flash our heaters, and take over. Not quite so simple, the thinker answered. Remember, Congress will be gathering that morning. We can't hope to hold our guns on these four key figures from that time until noon any more than we can hope to pass unnoticed in the crowd for such a period. He paused as Sammy started to open his mouth, then hastily continued. I know what you're thinking, and that won't work either. We can't show up at noon and just hijack the shipment, not in front of fifty or more men with troops just outside the door. Then what do you figure on us doing? The thinker took a deep breath, and then he told them, Oh, no, cried Sammy. Me? Making like John Hancock? Mush gasped. I should run around in one of them wigs like a big-shot politician? Nunzio scoffed. The thinker was calm. Don't you see it's the only way? The wigs are perfect disguises. Look, I've got pictures of all these men, and we can buy a makeup kit. I'm fortunately bald and approximately Franklin's build. Physically, we'll get by, and don't worry about playing the role of a politician. Yeah, Mush was thoughtful. After all, what's a politician anyway? Just a crook that's learned how to kiss babies. But we won't be kissing no babies that morning, Sammy reminded him. Me, I've been reading up a little on that stuff, too. 
Them four guys did a lot of things on the fourth. Made speeches, tried to get the rest of the Congress to sign, all kinds of stuff. And they knew everybody, everybody knew them. We'd fluff it for sure, trying to do what they did. That's just the point. Thinker Tomaszewski was triumphant. We don't have to do what they did. Because we're going back in time, we're changing what happened. I think I'm familiar enough with Franklin's personality. I can talk if necessary. Sammy, I'll coach you. The other two boys can be absent if need be, and it may well be necessary to guard our machine and our captives in the rear room. We're not going to merely reenact history. We're going to change it, to suit ourselves. Now do you get it? They got it, eventually, because the thinker rammed it down their throats. And so they got their coaching, got their truck, got their plan, and actually transported the machine bodily into the rear of the vehicle on the evening arranged for departure. It wasn't until they stood for the last time in the now open expanse of the cellar that Professor Cobbett voiced a final, timid protest. I hesitate to bring this up, he said, because you'll very likely suspect my motives. You'll think it's because you're preempting my property and because you are unwittingly involving me as an accomplice to your crime. You'll think it's because I have patriotic objections to your plans for desecrating our history. Well, haven't you? Sammy asked. Yes, I admit it. Sammy glanced significantly at Nunzio, then back to the professor as he continued. But what I have to say to you now, I say in my capacity as a scientist. In that capacity, I warn you, as I did on the first evening here, time travel is hazardous. The possibility of alteration of the past due to your invasion cannot be discounted. You may well find yourselves up against unforeseen factors, unexpected problems. That's why I never dared make the attempt myself, not even a journey of one minute, let alone almost two centuries. Should you fail, I must absolve myself of any responsibility. I shall await your return with the utmost trepidation. Don't bother, Sammy told him. We got all that figured, too. You plan on waiting for our return with a gang of coppers, don't you? The professor turned pale. Don't tell me you gentlemen expect me to come along, he murmured. I couldn't do that. I couldn't. I'd... I'd be afraid. Frankly, the dangers of dislocation or alteration in the past frighten me worse than the prospect of death itself. I'm glad, Sammy said slowly, on account of its either or, and you just made up our minds for us. The thinker was already out in the truck, but Mush and Nunzio stood beside Sammy in the cellar. Nunzio took out his heater, and Mush smiled. Well, he said, looks like we're starting off our trip with the bang. Four. And a bang-up journey it was. There was a route to travel, and guards to knock out and bind, and a heavy machine to cart up into the rear chambers of Independence Hall. Then came the nerve-wracking business of setting it up, and the thinker's frantic re-scanning of the professor's charts and directions as he set the computers. By the time they were ready to take off... 1.45 a.m. on the dot. The transition itself was almost an anticlimax. Anticlimax it proved to be. They huddled in the machine, the vacuum locks set and the vacuum-lined walls enclosing them, and a generator hummed and their fluorescent light above the dials dimmed, 
and the thinker pressed his finger down after endless adjustment of tab buttons. And then nothing happened, or seemed to happen until the moment, or century, or eternity of darkness elapsed. None of them were conscious of a change at all. It was when they opened the compartment and stepped out that the change occurred, or they were aware of its prior occurrence. Dinka, Nunzio said, blinking in the bright morning sunlight that streamed through the high windows. We made it. Sammy and the thinker and Mush didn't even look at him. They were staring at the four men on the other side of the room, four men who stared in turn at them. Then things happened fast. Things happened with orders and heaters and ropes and gags. Things happened with wigs and shoes and clothing. Four writhing figures squirmed on the floor, then calmed to quiescence as Mush used the butt of his heater. Fancy this, he sighed. Me knocking out old Ben Franklin himself. Never mind fancying it now, the thinker told him. We've got to get ready for more action. And so they'd gone into their act. Altering the text of the declaration itself was an inspiration on the thinker's part. Give him something to argue about all morning, he said. Keep them talking, then we don't have to. And if they accept the business about temporary governing powers and a treasurer, there'll be no questions asked when the gold arrives and we take charge of it. He glanced at Mush and Nunzio. You two go in the back room right now. Watch the machine. Keep the founding fathers company, and don't forget to watch the windows. Maybe the gold will arrive early. Professor Cobbett was no fool. I respect his judgment. If he said things might be a bit different in the past because our coming changed it, maybe he's right. Nothing different so far, Sammy said. Well, one never knows. Mush and Nunzio vanished, and the thinker turned to his companion. Remember your laryngitis. They call it Quincy in these times, and that's how I'll refer to it. And when I do, you cough. Got it, Sammy said. But hey, when's the gang showing up? He pulled his watch out of his pocket and studied. Must be after eight by now, he frowned. That's funny. It stopped. Still says seven thirty. Let me take a look outside, the thinker suggested. He strode to the window. Crowd down there, all right. But wait a minute, he tugged Sammy's arm. Look at those soldiers. I see 'em. You mean the ones in the tall hats with the red uniforms? Red uniforms mean British troops. British? The thinker didn't answer. He rushed to the door of the hall, flung it open. Two grenadiers in scarlet coats confronted him. He stared at the white piping on the coats, stared at the silvery steel of their bayonets. Halt! Cried the taller of the two, in the name of His Majesty. His Majesty? Yes, His Majesty. You pesky rebel! What kind of a gag is this? Sammy muttered. No gag, the thinker whispered. Professor Cobbett knew we changed the past by coming here. The British occupy Philadelphia. Enough of your babbling, sirrah! The soldier shouted. Save your protest for General Burgoyne. When he enters the city today, you and your fellow traitors can explain at a drumhead court-martial. The thinker paled. Changed history, he whispered. Burgoyne the victor. The Congress scattered. The four men we came upon in the back room weren't waiting for it to meet today. They've been trapped here without warning. 
They're prisoners, which means we're prisoners too. Oh, no, we ain't. Sammy drew out his heater and pulled the trigger. There was an almost inaudible click. He tried to fire again, but the thinker slammed the door. What good is that, he murmured. The place is surrounded. Gone jammed, Sammy was grumbling. Can't figure how. Then he blinked. Surrounded? And we're stuck, huh? Now what? Obviously we get back in the machine and get out of here. But don't you have to wait until noon anyway? I'll worry about that. Let's get the boys, and hurry. Those soldiers may decide to come in after us at any time. So they retreated to the rear room, and they got the boys and explained. And in a surprisingly short time, they were huddled in the time machine once more, huddled in the incongruous flummery of their colonial costumes, huddled and trembling and perspiring as the thinker checked his data and then reached for the computer levers. Reached and pressed or tried to press. "'What's happening?' Sammy shouted, the echo of his voice almost deafening them in the cramped confines of the metal chamber. "'Nothing,' the thinker groaned. "'Nothing's happening. That's just the trouble.' "'It don't work?' Nunzio wailed. "'No, and Sammy's watch doesn't work, and your guns don't work, because all of the principles are wrong, altered the way everything else is altered.' "'Let me try.' Mush pawed at the levers, the buttons, the dials. Then they were all clawing and scrabbling at once, and still nothing happened. The thinker stopped them. Might as well give up, he muttered. Professor Cobbett was right. We've changed the past. But even in 1776, guns and watches and machinery worked, didn't they? Sammy demanded. In our 1776, the thinker said. In our past... But this isn't our past anymore. It's our present. And by making the past the present, we've violated a fundamental law. Or tried to. Actually, fundamental laws can't be violated. But we came here. Yes, here. But here isn't our past. It couldn't be. It would have to be somewhere else. Where else could it be? Mush wanted to know a place where modern mechanisms don't work, not having been perfected yet, a place where the British defeated the forces of the Revolution and captured the Founding Fathers. And that could only be in an alternate universe. Alternate universe? The thinker was still trying to explain the concept of an alternate universe to them when the soldiers finally came in to drag them away. He had time only for a final warning as the troops seized them. They were very rough about it. Remember, like Franklin said, we must all hang together, he whispered. Even there the thinker was wrong. They were hanged separately. This concludes This Crowded Earth, a novel by Robert Block and other stories. This title is Performance Copyrighted 2009 by Wonder Audiobooks. For more unabridged vintage fiction titles, visit us on the web at www.wonderaudio.com. Thanks for listening.